In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Some of you may remember a year before last, the New York Rescue Mission teamed up with a foundation and made a video that got a lot of press. A lot of people noticed it, and it made a lot of people think. In this video, several people walking down the streets of New York came face to face with their relatives or significant others who were dressed as homeless people. The wife, the father, the mother, the sister would look at the homeless person and pass by, not recognizing the person they loved so much. Something stood between them. There was some divide, some distance. Sometimes there is such a thing, a distance or a divide that prevents recognition, much less compassion or empathy. That video can still be found on YouTube, and whenever I watch it, I wonder, how would I respond? Would I recognize? Do I recognize? Do I notice the people I pass every day? Today's gospel tells a story about a rich man and a poor man. The poor man is named Lazarus. We don't know the name of the rich man. It's important to footnote this here and say this is a different Lazarus than the Lazarus who is the brother to Mary and Martha, the Lazarus of Bethany who is, who is raised by Jesus. That Lazarus is in our window, the top window in the middle. And so I talk a lot about that Lazarus. This Lazarus is a different one. So if you can keep them straight, this Lazarus only appears in this story. And this Lazarus is poor and seems not to have much family at all, and in fact simply hangs out in front of the house of this rich man. The rich man, by tradition, is often called Dives. That's not his name, but that comes from the Latin for rich man. And so way back, uh, from Chaucer, through literature, through opera, uh, Dives is the name given to the rich man, and Lazarus is, of course, the poor Whether we see this story enacted in Sunday school by children wearing bedsheets or in an opera or in great literature, if you're like me and you prefer at least a somewhat happy ending, it's not a terribly happy story. It doesn't have an ending that resolves neatly with all the questions answered. Perhaps, as we've been talking on adult Christian education on Sunday mornings, perhaps this is one of those stories that the the evangelist wants us to complete in our lives. Perhaps he wants us to answer it for ourselves. Who knows? Jesus tells this story to Pharisees, and he tells it in a very pointed context. He's suggesting that those in his audience have completely misinterpreted the law handed down by Moses and the prophets. The the Pharisees are twisting religion and using it for their own ends. And so it's to them that Jesus tells this story of a very rich man, a man so rich that every meal is a feast. 
But just outside this man's kitchen, just outside this man's vast dining room, there's a person waiting there, watching there, just for a little bit of food, maybe a little bit of money, maybe just praying for a break. Well, the two men die, as Jesus tells the story. They go to Hades, this place that in the minds of first century people of faith existed as a place of of flowing water and jumping flames, both things. And so there we meet this character who we can nickname Dives, and he's in for a surprise. He looks across the way and he sees Father Abraham walking, and Abraham was the great patriarch, the, the absolute ancestor of all the faiths. So how wonderful to see Abraham, but who's walking with Abraham? But that guy. That guy that's always outside the front door asking for money, being a nuisance, that guy, Lazarus. There he is, looking great, walking with Abraham. And so Dives wants Abraham to notice him. After all, Dives has lived what Dives thinks is a a good life, a, a successful life. He's made a lot of money. He's lived sumptuously, and Abraham should know him. He's a big man. And so he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Could you have Lazarus go over to the fountains and dip his finger in and then bring it over? I'm thirsty. He's in for a surprise as Abraham looks at him and says, Remember, Dives, during your lifetime you received good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, evil things, bad things. But here he is comforted. And you are in agony. And then almost as an afterthought, Abraham adds, besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed. A great chasm. A distance, an expanse, a void, a separation. It's it's this chasm that dooms Dives. It's this distance that keeps him From knowing Lazarus, knowing anything about Lazarus, knowing anything about Lazarus' life or being able to relate to it. Now, Jesus tells this story not to paint a geographical picture of heaven. Jesus is not even offering a theologically accurate picture of the afterlife. And Jesus is not suggesting that, that one necessarily gets the opposite in the afterlife of what one gets in this life. But instead, I think Jesus wants to point us to those words of Abraham, to that image of Abraham, of a chasm, a deep chasm, a divide, a gulf, this problem of separation that if not dealt with on earth can follow us into heaven. If we don't attempt to lessen The chasms in this life, they might be so deep as even to enter, to to keep us from entering heaven. This rich man isn't bad. Jesus doesn't say he's bad or evil, but he's kept himself apart. He's kept himself away and separated and removed from the pain of Lazarus, from the situation of Lazarus and others like him. Dives has kept to his side of the chasm, And he's been quite happy there. The story asks obvious questions of us, I think. What are the chasms that separate us from others? 
When I tell people where our church is located, sometimes they immediately assume it's an Upper East Side church and we're on Park Avenue and everybody's just rolling in money. I quickly tell them, we're in Yorkville. We could do with a little more Park Avenue. But no, we've got everything here. We've got some folks who've been really blessed in life and they do just fine. And then we've got a lot of folks who have struggled every day. And how they make it through, I'm not sure. And we've got everybody in between. And so no matter who we might be, there probably are those chasms. The rich have no need to associate with the poor. It takes an effort, but there are ways. And I guarantee you, if you ask someone who has stepped across those divides and met someone and heard their story, they've been changed through that experience. The same thing happens sometimes where someone who may be on the poorer side of life always assumes certain things about the wealthy and then meets someone who's wealthy and learns that they too are human. Obviously, in our culture, and when it comes to political conversations, there are enormous chasms and they're probably not going to be divided anytime soon. But we can at least be alert to Christ's nudging us just a little bit, not to take up every argument, not to always have to um, say something in return, but perhaps just to say a little prayer and move on to the next subject. Within religion, especially within the Anglican communion, there are lots of chasms, of separations, and, and as long as we worship here and stay here, we don't have to face them. But whenever we see or meet Anglicans from elsewhere in the world or meet Episcopalians from some parts of our country, we realize that we have huge differences, and we're not always sure what to say next. Sometimes it may not even be a chasm, but it can be like a little hairline crack that some of our consultants are helping us to see in our building that we need to take care of, or it'll open up, it'll be a big thing. Sometimes a similar situation happens in a relationship or a family or a working situation. It may just be a hairline crack. We have a means to navigate these chasms, to navigate any distance, to stretch over these places. And it all begins with baptism. In just a few minutes, Theo is going to get baptized. And that's the beginning. Baptism reminds us that it's a lot more than water and prayer and light and love. As the prayer book reminds us, there's an inward and spiritual grace that says it's a union with Christ in his death and resurrection, birth into God's family, the church, forgiveness of sins, and new life in the Holy Spirit. That's a lot. And we have that from the moment of our baptism, and it never leaves us. I remember seeing this inward and spiritual grace come outward in no uncertain terms in the first parish I served We had a young woman in the church who was in her senior year of high school, and she discovered that she was pregnant. At first, her family were all furious. They wouldn't speak to each other. The boyfriend wouldn't call back. His family was furious. It quickly got around in our small town. It was a horrible, horrible situation. 
But something began to shift along the way, very quietly, very subtly. And eventually, a little girl was born, and there was baptism. And even until that morning, we weren't sure who was coming to church. (laughs) But there they were. Everybody. They might not have loved each other. They might not have even liked each other. But something about the prayers and the ritual and the presence of the Holy Spirit, it began a process of healing. That moment, that little girl began to symbolize healing in those families. And and it was a reminder for all of us of the power of baptism. And that power never escapes us. Even though we're just baptized once, it stays with us. We recall our baptism. We remember our baptism The ancient sign of the cross was really meant to be just that, a reminder of a baptism. In the 4th century, St. Augustine wrote, What else is the sign of Christ but the cross of Christ? For unless that sign be applied, whether it be to the foreheads of believers or to the very water out of which they are regenerated, or to the oil with which they receive the anointing chrism, or to the sacrifice that nourishes us, none is properly administered. He liked the sign of the cross. I have a friend who who wasn't raised in the Anglican tradition, and when she went through confirmation classes, she remembered hearing all of this about making the sign of the cross, and she really held on to it. And so it got to the point where any time there was a difficult situation, if she was on the subway and someone was raising the anxiety of the entire car, or if she was on the phone and someone was getting to her, or she was trying to do something that was really hard, she would cross herself and mutter to herself, I am baptized. (laughs) It was like rearming herself against anything that could come. I am baptized. Nothing can get me. (laughs) Baptism is not magic. But it's that kind of power. The power to remind us of our common humanity. the, The power to move us out of isolation and toward another. The confidence to leave the safety of my side, of whatever chasm it might be, and begin to move across, whether that movement might be a a tiptoe or a step or a leap or a lunge across. This morning, let Theo remind us all of our baptisms. May we recall the power of the Holy Spirit. May we be moved with Christ to cross the chasms in our world this day and forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.